Well, good morning, Olive Branch. How you guys doing? Good, good. It was good worship. It was good to be with you guys. You know, being an American, we've all watched tons and tons of movies. We've read probably uh, plenty of stories and different books and things. Uh, I've always been impressed by amazing lives when they come to, and it comes to movies and stories. One of those amazing lives, you guys will remember, uh, maybe some of you haven't heard of this, but he was a young man who was born somewhere down in the South and he had a kind of a, uh, some disabilities. He couldn't walk real well. He wasn't very quick in the learning. And so he was bullied quite a bit, and he had braces on his legs. And so throughout the, throughout the story, you discover that he actually, those braces come off, and he's actually able to run, and run rather quickly, you know, run faster than his bullies, run faster than those who are trying to chase him down. He winds up being on the football team, and he gets a scholarship, and, and actually leads them by running quickly, oftentimes straight into the end zone, and keeps on running, and uh, winds up winning, gets to go to the presidential, you know, the White House, and meet the president, all that cool stuff. And he turns around, winds up in Vietnam. As he's out in Vietnam, he gets shot and finds himself in the infirmary. And while he's there getting well, he figures out that he's got an aptitude for this game called ping pong. And as he's playing ping pong faster and faster and better and better, winds up in China dealing with people playing ping pong against them and endorses a certain paddle and makes some money for it. And he eventually turns around, takes that $25,000 and he goes, you know, we're going to use this for something. After a hurricane hits, he buys the only shrimp boat left out there on the market. And he starts a shrimping, a shrimp boat company and a shrimping company. And he uh, winds up opening all this stuff. And, he, and you guys know who I'm talking about. Who am I talking about? Forrest Gump, right. Okay, so we know that story. It's so incredible because he's in all these locations and he's ending up in all these odd random things throughout history. Historical events, historical people. He's even edited into television shots. And when you stop to think about the, that kind of a life, you begin to wonder, you know, years later, somebody's going to really think that Forrest Gump was this real guy that actually existed or are they going to know it's a fiction? Because there are extraordinary lives, that we've read about and we see. I'll give you another example of another young man who was actually a good runner. He was so fast, he didn't outrun bullies. What he did is he outran the cops as they were chasing him down. Um, after he'd steal something or disappear, uh, eventually this young man would wind up um, being seen for how fast he could run. He was asked to join the track team and he became actually really proficient at running, got a USC scholarship and wound up running so fast he joined the Olympics for the long distance, running the 1600 meters or the one mile as we we'd call it. And eventually he'd get his opportunity. He would go to Berlin for the Berlin Olympics. And there during one of the laps of his race, as he was kind of in last place, he took, just kicked it into high gear and ran the fastest quarter a mile that uh, humans had ever seen. And he became, became clearly identified as the man who might break the four minute mile. Well, he also got noticed by Hitler, invited up to his box, was actually uh, um, had a chance to meet Hitler if you want to have that chance. You know, this is before the war. He actually uh, states he stole one of the uh, Nazi flags just because he wanted a souvenir. And when they flew back, he was getting ready to go to the Japanese Olympics and um, the World, World War II broke out. He wound up in the the Pacific Theater flying in a bomber. And during one of the rescue missions that they'd sent him on in a really broken down rickety bomber, it crashed into the ocean. He found himself in the Pacific surviving for 47 days floating around the Pacific Ocean. Eventually, he and the other survivor that made it through that ordeal would wind up being picked up by the Japanese, thrown into an internment camp. He'd be personally, uh, personally persecuted, basically, by one of the prison camp guards and would wind up finding his way back to the United States as a survivor and end up um, kind of drinking and living his life in a pretty broken way. 
And yet then he would find himself at another amazing event where Billy Graham was, you know, just thrown out into the, into the limelight of American history. And that was at his crusade in LA. He gave his life to Jesus, became one of the people that worked with Billy Graham, preached the gospel, and found himself going back to Japan to preach that message to the very people that had tried to harm him and kill him so badly. And this amazing story is not a Forrest Gump story. It's a true story of a man named Louis Zamperini. If you ever uh, watched the movie Unbroken or read the book Unbroken, you'll read about Louis's life. He grew up here in Torrance. He was actually, um, he's well known in the area. And Louis is an incredible story because he has almost like a Forrest Gump level existence. And yet he's a real person. He's not a, a fictitious a Forrest Gump creation. And well, why do you bring all these two people up? Because honestly, when you really begin to engage the Bible, many people can point out, hey, yes, this book is historical. And that's what we went through last week. We showed that it, the people and the places that are indicated in the Bible throughout the history of the Bible are indeed realistic, true places you can find in archaeology. But the question is, how do you know if Jesus and these characters aren't Forrest Gump's? versus Louis Zamperini's. What's, how do we know that this isn't some fiction that we're believing in versus an actual, real, historical set of people? And that's a really good question because as we dive into this, uh, this series, we finish off actually this series on static, we're asking a simple question. Is the Bible static? Has it been something that has remained the same through the ages or is it something that's been changed? And if it hasn't been changed, how do you know it's the word of God? Because if it is the word of God, then we've got to do something. We've got to change because it's as if God himself showed up to tell us how to live. And I think all of us, if that happened, would have to listen. Don't you agree? And so what goes on in our culture, however, is that we look at the Bible and we say, nah, it's not the word of God. In fact, it's been changed. And I believe the reason we argue that is because we don't want to change. I want to live my life. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want some book to tell me how to live. I don't want some God to tell me how to live. So if it's not God's word and it's been changed, I can ignore it. And yet what we saw last week was the mountain of evidence that revealed not only can you be assured that you're reading an accurate text, that you can, be reliable, you can reliably trust that you're reading what the authors wrote and that it's historically accurate, but that you have something that I believe is also the word of God. Now that's a different move, right? When we start talking about it as the word of God, that God has spoken to us and he didn't speak with static so you didn't understand it, but he spoke clearly and told us that he has spoken to us. Now we have a different argument to make and that's what I want to enter into. See, we need to get past that it's been changed. We see it's not been, but now what we need to do is engage now into a conversation of how would you know them? this reliable text is actually God's word. And that's what we're going to step in. And I'm going to start in this argument by just saying, well, I think the idea is to let God personally identify it. We need to allow God to be the one who says, yep, that is my word. Now, how in the world would we do that without God literally showing up and saying, that's my word? Well, let's start with these texts. Is this set of texts that you and I have, this collection of ancient manuscripts, which are reliably at least the, the ones that were written that we've, we've had handed down to us, you know, how do you know this isn't a gump versus a zamp reality? Because Louis Zamperini was real and gump wasn't. And the answer 
has to be taken in by people who would be able to identify this. And these are literary critics, people who understand uh, English and understand uh, ancient literature. And one person who is particularly able to do this, in fact, he was an Oxford scholar who uh, later becomes a Cambridge Don, and his particular focus as an Oxford scholar was ancient material, ancient written material, and their genres and stuff like that. We know him as C.S. Lewis. He is later an author of all kinds of other things like the Narnian Chronicles, but his day job, his normal job was a world-class literary critic at Oxford. And this is what he wrote when it came to the Gospels. He says, I have been reading poems and romances and vision literature, legends, myths, all my life. And, and that's true. In fact, in his, in his biography, he was re he'd read Beowulf in the original language very early on, almost every single year. He loved that poem so much. That's called a nerd, okay? So we're listening to a guy here who, who really likes this stuff. He says, I know what they are all like. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. You got that? We got it all down? That's, that's scholar talk. What he's saying is this. I know what these ancient documents are like. I know what they're all like. I've read the myths. I've read all these things up here, the legends, the vision literature, the romances. When I read the gospel, this is either a news report, a report on the level of an eyewitness biography, or these guys predicted the way that you and I read novels today. The way that you and I have a novel like Dickens or the way that you and I have a movie like Forrest Gump is because there was an invention in the 1500s of this modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. And the first one that really comes out is called Don Quixote. You ever heard Don Quixote? Don Quixote is written in the 1500s, the first written modern novel where they would take incidental pieces of the environment around them and put a fictitious character in them. Before that, it's not really done. Yes, they walk them around in local territories and the legends and the stuff like that, but not to have little, small, incidental, unnecessary little bits of information that didn't deal with the plot. That was always in ancient writing, but this idea of making you think about a modern, realistic, the word realistic environment is a new invention relatively. And yet that's exactly what you see in the Gospels. I mean, when Jesus sleeping out on the front of the boat when he's about to calm the waves, it says he's lying his head on a cushion. There's no reason to tell you that unless he was lying his head on a cushion. And that wasn't how they wrote back then. They just said he was sleeping and they move on to the miracle. And yet all these little incidental details about the, the cost of the nard and the, all these different things that are all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that don't have anything to do with the actual narrative points to that what they're doing is giving you a report of what actually happened. They're giving you a report of, how, of what, what they were actually seeing go on in the first century. And we know they were historically there. We know they understood the culture. We see all these things. And so this is not a Forrest Gump individual. This is a Louis Zamperini individual. That's what they're giving you is the report of Jesus. And in that report of Jesus, what you and I will discover is that Jesus is reported as claiming that he was God. He actually makes the claim that he is the actual son of God. He claims that he was before Abraham. He makes the claim that he was, uh, that he had seen what the, pro he was what the prophets were looking for. He says, God, the father shares the glory with him that they had before the creation. Jesus is constantly being reported as being someone who claimed he was God. His favorite use of that is the word son of man. You're thinking, 
No, that means he's a human, not God. Unless you've read the book of Daniel. When you dive into the book of Daniel, what you'll discover is that there's this event, this scene in which all the kingdoms of men are finally being brought to this judgment by the ancient of days. God shows up and he takes all their authority and all of the power of the heavens and the earth and he divests it in this almost divine being called one like the son of man. And this is the title that Jesus picks up and says, I'm the son of man. I'm this one who's divested in all heavenly and earthly authority, and only God has that, and that's who I am. The second report that we get clearly is not only did Jesus claim he was God, he also made the prediction that he would be killed and raised from the dead. We actually find that in Mark's report here. He says, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Now, You could say, oh, the disciples are writing this after he was resurrected. Of course, they put that into his mouth because they wanted him to look cool. But here's the problem. They actually say, no, 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 he said this and we didn't believe him. We didn't know what he's talking about. They didn't go, and we were so sure that Jesus would show up. No, they actually say, we had no clue. We thought he was telling us this parable. Just like if I was to stand up here and tell you all these stories and say, yeah, I'm going to die. And then I'm going to come back from the dead. Three days later, you'd be like, no, that's not what he means. That's weird. And that's exactly how they felt. This Messiah thing isn't supposed to work that way. He must be telling us a secret that we don't understand. And yet exactly what happens with Jesus is that he is crucified. That's outside of his control. Betrayed, crucified, and then three days later, according to the reports that we received from these men who were near him, he rises from the dead. Now, some of you guys are like, oh, well, how do you deal with the risen from the dead thing? Isn't that a myth? That sounds so weird. Well, it's far too close to be a myth. Myths take hundreds of years. You got to get away from the original people to create one. But what you end up with is a very interesting set of information. And I don't have time to go over all the details. You can, I'll reference you back to our Easter sermon on these details. But look, it's a lot like an equation. It, do it with me now. If you were to add one plus two plus three plus four, what do you get? The number is 10, right, good. We got our math people here. Sometimes we get it wrong. But one plus two plus three plus four is 10. Now what happens if you add four plus three plus two plus one? What's the answer? 10, doesn't matter what order you put them in. Those four digits produce that answer. In the same way, there are four very clear facts that both skeptical scholars and biblical scholars, Christian scholars, agree on. And these four facts are four facts of history. Number one, that Jesus was crucified. They don't argue this. They just go, yes, we know that. Outside of the source of the Bible and inside, he has been crucified. Number two, he, the tomb is empty. There's plenty of attestation that something happened. As we saw last week, even a strange piece of rock with an inscription to stop digging up bodies in in Nazareth. And they say, look, clearly the tomb was empty, and then the disciples claim that they saw Jesus alive. Nobody disputes that all the the disciples claimed they saw Jesus alive. And the last and the fourth one is that two people who were against this vision in this church suddenly become part of it and leaders in it, namely James, the brother of Jesus, who thought his brother was crazy and turns in to say, yeah, my brother's God. And I always ask the question, what would it take for you to believe that your brother was God? (laughs) And then there's Saul, who's persecuting to destroy the church, becomes Paul, who propagates the church. 
Now, it's one thing to remove one of these variables, and you can get alien Jesus, or you can get um, the idea that he swooned on the cross and got into a cool tomb and woke up and walked out, or there was a twin Jesus, or there's all these other ones that are out there, but none of these other explanations take those four things in. When you add those four variables together, when you put those four facts in, there's only one answer, and that's 10. That's the resurrection. In the same way, you have these four things that are clearly historical, given the reports, given from external reports, that add up to Jesus rose from the dead. And hey, if a guy can predict his death and resurrection and pull it off, I listen to that guy, right? I mean, if, you can, if a guy does that, and then he said he was God, I go, ooh, yeah, I better lean in and listen a little bit more clearly. What's interesting is this one who claimed he was God, said he would die, raised from the dead, and pulls it off, actually pointed to the scriptures, pointed to the Hebrew scriptures, and he said, you know what? That Old Testament that you and guys, that we love so much, that's God's word. In fact, he says it here in the book of Matthew, chapter 19, beginning of verse 4, if I can get it to work. There we go. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Let's do a Sunday school question. Who made them male and female, class? Well, very good. Let's try it again. Who made them male and female, class? God. God. Yeah, that's, a, that's the Sunday school answer. It's always Jesus or God. You can get through all of Sunday school and seminary with just those two answers. I'm just kidding. <laughs> What you have here is this opportunity to see that he's saying, God made them male and female. And then he makes this quote, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's having a conversation over divorce with the Pharisees. And as he's quoting this verse, he's quoting the end of chapter two of Genesis. What's interesting is in the end of chapter two of Genesis, when this quote shows up, it's not God who's talking. It's the narrator. The narrator of Genesis is speaking and sharing with you. You'd say, well, the narrator's Moses. No, Jesus is saying the narrator's God. The narrator of the Old Testament is God. He's the one telling you the story. He's the one giving you his word. Jesus over and over and over will say, did you not hear when the Lord has said? Or do you not know that it is written? He is constantly referring to the Old Testament as God's word. And if Jesus claims he's God, he probably, and he pulled off a resurrection, he's probably got some authority to tell you what God's word looks like. In other words, what we would want is God to show up and say, well, what's your words? And God shows up and says, those are my words. In fact, he'll even say, and the words that I'm speaking, if he's God, would be God's words, right? And he would say, and those, when they'd be written down, would be his words. And so he promises that they would be preserved for us and we would have them. He does that on the last night of his life as he's walking with his disciples. He tells them about God himself coming to to pass on his word. And that would be in the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's right here in John 14. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, again, who is God, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so the God in Jesus promises is that he's going to give you the spirit and he's going to allow you to remember what my words are and invariably what we have then in the New Testament, the Old Testament, would be what we think is God's word identified by one who said he was God and pulled it off in a resurrection. Now, I get it. Some of you are like, that is not an argument. No, it's a piece of an argument. Let that sit there for a minute. It's not a slam dunk, but it begins an interesting set of fingerprints throughout the scriptures. In fact, let's just say this. Let's start in this way. 
Let's let the Bible speak for itself. Let's just let these documents make the claim of what they say. In my house, there is a box, and it's up in our, um, actually, I think it's next to my wife's bed at this point, but that used to be in our closet, and we would pull it down occasionally, and my daughter would like to look through it, because in it are all these old letters. Any, any of you ladies have one of these boxes where it's got all your old letters from years and years and years? And well, she'd open it up, and it'd have like old letters from, you know, past boyfriends or friends. I, I had some in there, and her friends are in there. So, and you'd pull them out, and you could read them, and they're really embarrassing, but you could read them and you knew who they were from. Every single one of them, you knew exactly who it was from. You know why? Because you sign it at the end. You say, from Greg, from, you know, Michelle, from Denise, all these different letters from different people signed. So if God was trying to tell us this is from him, don't you think he would sign it? Don't you think you would say, this is from me? In fact, what's interesting, out of the 31,100 verses or so we have in the Bible, 1,619 of them have a phrase, thus says the Lord. The Lord said, this is, this is, the Lord, this is from the Lord. All of this is his signature saying, I'm telling you this is me. I'm telling you I'm writing. I'm telling you this is what I said. And I get it. Some of us say, well, anybody could write God said. Anybody could do that. Yes, anybody could do that, clearly. But there's another aspect to this that's a little different than just God said, and so he signed it. The aspect to me is, is, the, is found in, again, my, my enjoyment of a particular set of films. I love Christopher Nolan films. He's a, anybody know Christopher Nolan films? He's the guy who did the Batman series. He's done the, the Prestige, and he did a, a bunch of these other really amazing films, Interstellar and stuff like that. I really enjoy his films, because I can tell you when it's a Christopher Nolan film, and I don't even have to see the credits because he has a way of putting the film together. He has a, uh, angles that he has. He has a philosophical bend on every film that he's working with. And it just grabs you and it's intriguing. And you can tell, hey, that's a Christopher Nolan film. Some of you guys, you love other, you, you have some others that you love that are out there. Different, maybe you love, um, oh, M. Night Shyamalan used to be one you'd know and then he disappeared. You knew it was an M. Night Shyamalan film even when he didn't put his name on it anymore. Because it was a certain twist. He was trying for something. You know these different, you, you know if you like Quentin Tarantino films, you're not a Christian. That's just how that works. <laughs> I, I'm just kidding. But you, you know if it's one of his mov movies because his films have his marks all over it. And my point is that when people spend time with a set of information, when they spend time with the voice of somebody, they know what that voice sounds like. When these apostles sat three years under a man who said he was God and they heard and they read the scriptures and they knew it because they were Jewish, they saw the voice of God in the Old Testament. They heard the voice of God. from this. They were very aware of the voice of God. And so when they were penning what they were writing, they were like, wow, this is the voice of God. Moses, who sat in front of God, literally had face-to-face -face encounters with God, knew his voice when he's writing. He's going, this is the word of God. Prophets who were to hear from God knew God's voice, knew what God would say, understood what God's word looked like. This is exactly what every time one of the ancient church fathers would say when they came to the word of God, they're like, this is clearly, one of these New Testament books is clearly God's word. His, his voice is all through it. Sort of like we'd say, that's clearly a Christopher Nolan film. That is clearly, you name it. It's not just that he signed it. 
is that the way that he speaks and the things that he's about are in it. In fact, this is what Peter saw when he was reading Paul's letters because in 2 Peter, he'll literally call Paul's letters scripture. And Paul will actually say of the Old Testament that it's God breathed. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. He's saying God has a breathing out of a message. He's trying to get our attention, to teach us something, to shape and change us. Well, of course, we don't want to be changed, so let's not let it be God's word. Let's push it off. Yet we forget that this book has been considered God's word for almost 2,000 years. And I want to I share some, a thought with you for a minute. That's another piece towards this being God's word. We live in a time period right now that wants to divide us up, that wants to chop us up. In fact, you dwell in those seats, sitting there staring at me or at home staring at the computer or, or your television, or there are people out there on the freeway driving by, they're walking through Sam's Club, picking up their food. There are people on other states and other locations all having an experience of this reality. Who are you to tell them that they're wrong, is what our world says. Who are you to tell you that your experience of life is wrong? Let alone you're all Americans. You can't escape your Americanness. In fact, some of you are a subset of Americans. You're a white American. You're a black American. You're a Hispanic American. You have a black experience, a Hispanic experience, a white experience. You know what? And you need to either feel guilty or you need to feel encouraged or you need to feel like a victim or you need to feel something about your experience because you know what? That's your experience and nobody can tell you your experience is wrong or right or anything else. And it's dividing us like crazy. What we need is somebody, just one person, who could see from everybody's angle, who could see it through your eyes and understand how you see things and see how you see it right and see how you see it wrong, who could see it through every perspective, through every black man's and black woman's eyes, through every gay and straight's eyes, through every white person's eyes, through everybody's eyes and see how we see life right and how we see life wrong. And that person is God, who knows everything perfectly, He's more American than any American because he knows every single American perspective. He's more Chinese than the Chinese because he sees every single Chinese perspective. He's more Ethiopian than the Ethiopians. He is more capable of understanding the human reality than anybody because he is God. He knows it all. He sees it all. He understands it all. And do you not think a God who sees all of our perspectives, takes in all of this information, understands all these things, would stand back and not tell us how to fix this mess? And he did. And he made it simple. He put it beautifully in story, in poetry. He put it in apocalyptic vision and letters and law so that the human being could engage at whatever method and model they engage with. And this hasn't been just our culture, my friends. This book has been able to train people in righteousness in every continent throughout the history of humanity over and over and over again for the last 2,000 years. You're not talking about some Western book. You're talking about a message given from God about a man who came and who was God himself, to bear our sins, to set us free, to equalize us all in the same playing field, to drop all of our divisions so that we would be one humanity under the image of God and needed the same Savior. This is an equalizing message, not a dividing one. 
And when we have this reality, you begin to see that God is out to get our attention. And so why wouldn't he just drop his fingerprints all over it? And maybe these two arguments aren't enough. Let's add some more. Because this message is desperately needed. And what we see then is that these fingerprints, these other ones are available too. Let's start with this one. The Bible is reliable in the past, in history, and the future. We looked at the archaeological evidence. Those of you who have been part of the, um, part of the apologetics group, you've, you've heard a bunch of the archaeology that uh, they've been going through. There's even more they're adding on today. But look, the Bible is constantly, constantly shown to be reliable in archaeology. What are you talking about the future? Well, the future is interesting because there's a category in your Bible called prophecy. And prophecy is one of those fascinating things that God actually told the Jewish people, listen, why are you going off to all these other leaders, off to all these other gods? Can they tell you what's going to happen? He says, I can, and here. And so he begins to lay it out. In fact, one of those that I'm going to give you, and there's about 11 or 12 that have been laid out by, um, by Josh McDowell in Evidence Demands a Verdict. This one I want to show you, it comes from Ezekiel chapter 26. So if you want to go there in your Bibles, you can Join me. It's on page 713 of the Bibles under the seats, not 274, but um, 713 of the Bibles under the seats. And so you can grab that. And what we see here is an interesting prophecy against a city called Tyre. Now, Tyre is the capital of a nation called Phoenicia. And you guys heard of Phoenicia because you have phonics. Hooked on phonics works for me, right? So phonics is where we get the, it comes from Phoenicia because we use the phonetic alphabet, and the Phoenicians were supposed to be the inventors of this. And so Tyre is, a, is their capital city. It's the centerpiece of their trade, and it's sitting there nice and pretty while all of Israel is out in Babylon. Their nation's been destroyed, and they're all depressed. So Ezekiel gets this vision from God, and this is roughly in 587 to 586 BC. And we can pinpoint the time period. Because, and we're pretty confident that Ezekiel ha, is from that time period because he borrows all this Akkadian loan words and all these Assyrian loan words that aren't used in, in actual Judaism. And so he's a very interesting character, a very specific time period. And he writes about Tyre this. He says, verse 3, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O people, O Tyre, and I'll bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. They shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. She shall be in the midst of the sea, a place for the spreading of nets, for I have spoken, declares the Lord, and she shall become plunder for the nations. What is interesting is that as uh, Josh McDowell begins to lay this out, he lays out that there are several actual prophecies. There are seven involved here in this text, as you look all the way down to verse 21. And the first one is that Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and destroy the mainland city. And we do know this occurred. And some people would say, ah, that's easy. Ezekiel could have known that because he lived in Babylon, could have known what was going on. And so he marches against Tyre. The second one, that many nations would come against Tyre. That's also kind of maybe predictable, right? You know, Babylon could knock them down and they could rebuild and then they could get knocked down again. And this is pretty much what happens. But Tyre is a special case because Tyre was an interesting city. They had this very coastal main, this coastal main city and then out across the water, there was an island and on it was another part of Tyre. And so what would happen is that Nebuchadnezzar personally showed up as they were sieging Tyre to destroy it, and all the people got on their boats, sailed across to the little island, and stood on the island and looked over at Nebuchadnezzar and went, nah, 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 because they don't, he doesn't have any, any boats. So Babylon destroyed Tyre and then moved on. When they had gone, 
The people of Tyre got their stuff, sailed back across, rebuilt their main city, and off they went. Phoenicia kept going. And so what was interesting is that there would be constant invasions and attacks on this city over the years. In fact, they, they can be reported all the way into the Crusades. I mean, nation after nation after nation after nation would wind up trying to beat down this city at some level. One of the most important ones is interesting because one of the prophecies is that they would be scraped clean, bare as a rock, flat like a rock, and fishermen would spread their nets over the site. They would throw the debris into the water, according to verse 12, and it would never be rebuilt again. Here's what's interesting about that, is that this next, after a couple more invasions and things happen, suddenly this guy named Alexander the Great shows up. We all know Alexander the Great. Well, Alexander the Great finishes beating up on the Persians, taking over their area, and starts headed south. He's going to take over the Egyptians next. And as he's marching south, he comes upon the Phoenician cities. And he goes up to each one and says, surrender. And Sidon goes, we surrender. And he goes up to Tyre and he says, surrender. And they say, nah. And they sail across on their little boats to the island. Well, there's one word that Alexander the Great didn't like. And that's, nah. He hated it. So he attacks the city, gets all, gets is destroying, starts tearing it up, and they sail across, and they stand out there on the island, they look over at Alexander, and they go, nah, 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 nah. and Alexander suddenly says, there's another word I don't like. He's so enraged. He tells his army, tear up the city, throw it into the ocean, and they build a causeway with every brick from the city, scraping it clean, throwing it in the water, producing a causeway that's several, I think it's 200 meters long, just this gigantic causeway, oh, sorry, 200 feet long, built a mole, just crossed over, attacked the city, leveled it, threw it into the ocean, and conquered Tyre. And then he moved on south. Scraped clean, thrown in the ocean. Sure, it would be rebuilt, but it would never be rebuilt as a city. And after many years of it being sacked, what you find today in 2019 is a small, sleepy little village in the location of Tyre. Some of the old ancient city foundations are there, but so much of the city's been gone and thrown into the ocean and moved around. Nobody's quite sure what it looked like originally anymore. Oh, and what about the island part, right? Still, small little sleepy village, and all they do is they use it to go in and out as fishermen. And they spread out their nets and they clean them off every day for centuries. How does Ezekiel know 2,400, 2,300 years ago what would be happening in Tyre today? That they'd just be fishing in a grand city capital of one of the great seagoing people. Another one of these interesting prophecies that we run across is given by Jesus. It happens just after they have been in the temple in his last week of life. He steps out and the disciples are looking around at this place, this temple, and they go, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to them, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, this is an incredible statement. These, this is a giant facility. This is huge with inlaid gold and beauty, and they are, they've just finished this thing. And Jesus is walking out going, all that, gone. Every stone will be pulled off. That's specific. In, and what happens is in 70 A.D., 
Israel, Israel, the Jewish people have been fighting against Rome. Rome gets so sick of it, they finally send in their military units to start conquering all down Judea and all, all through Samaria, just wiping out the Jewish people as much as they can. They finally come to Jerusalem, set siege to Jerusalem, and during that time period, we know the prophecy of Jesus was known because shortly after he states these things, he says, when you see these signs, let the reader be aware, it says, get out of the city. Even if you're pregnant, don't wait. This is written in the book of Mark. It's written in the book of Luke. Both books, which we know were written roughly around 53 to 63 AD, around that time period, seven years before there's even any violence beginning with the Jewish people against Rome. And when he writes this, in 70 AD, the Jewish people were telling everybody, stay in the city, you'll be defended. God will protect us in the city. And the Christians who had a good relationship with the Jews in Jerusalem at that time said, no, Jesus told us we needed to leave. And when they listened to Jesus and not to the Jewish people, a rift tore into Judaism versus Christianity that began really there. Because the Christians abandoned the location, went off into the Petra, and survived the horror of what happened in 70 AD as Jerusalem was sacked. You know what happened next? Titus marches into Jerusalem and walks up to the temple, walks, rips open the temple, walks into it, looks around, then orders it to be torn down. And Roman, Roman soldiers then proceed to pry brick by brick every single stone of the entire temple mount to take the gold out and scrape it out and take it away, and they were just thrown everywhere to the point where not one stone was left upon another, according to Josephus. Jesus knew exactly what was going to be going on. God put his fingerprints of prophecy throughout the text to show you this is from me. Another aspect is the strange scientific knowledge the Bible seems to have. And for example, the universe had a beginning. We all take that for granted. But if you had lived in the early 1900s, you wouldn't have. You would have assumed if you were the highest physicist of the day that the universe was infinite. There had no beginning, no ending. That was the argument. In fact, Einstein was so sure of it, when his equations began to show that it seemed there was a beginning point to the universe, he added the universal constant, something he invented to make sure that it was infinite. He called it his greatest regret. Because when Hubble sat down in his telescope here in Los Angeles, looked up into the sky, he saw this strange effect called the red shift. And it meant that things were moving away from us. And as he extrapolated that, he came down to what we today would call the Big Bang. Now, whether you're opposed to it or for it or whatever, it doesn't really matter. The bottom line is when they came to the reality that the universe had a beginning, you know what they called it in science at the beginning? Creationism in disguise. They were so shocked by it because only one book of the ancient world said there was a beginning to the universe, and that's this one. Everything else had chaotic gods and all this other weird stuff going on, let alone weird stuff like this. In the book of Job, there's a strange event where God is questioning Job about the reality of the world around him. And he asks Job this, some strange things. One of them, he says, is, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? The deep and the sea are the concept of the ocean. And people used to mock this. Oh, the springs of the deep. Yeah, when Noah got in his boat and the springs of the deep broke open. Yeah, there's no springs in the deep. That's what they would say until 1977, when off the coast of South America, they went down about a mile and discovered massive springs that are constantly pouring forth water into the ocean. And you have now discovered them all over the place. There are springs in the midst of the deep. See, in the ancient world, they thought the ocean was just a giant bowl that had a center right in the middle, and that's where all, how the water sat. They didn't have contours and 
deeps and, and currents. None of that concept, because how deep could you go into the water in the ancient world? Not very. And so what you see here is constant. Uh, there's a whole bunch of those weird ones in Job, and I don't have time to go through all that stuff. But 1977, how did this, this is the oldest book in the Bible. How does it, how does it know this stuff from 4,000 years ago? And so we begin to go, okay, fingerprints of science. And I, I don't have time to go over all of them. If you ever want to have a geek conversation, come out and talk to me. I'd love to do that. But let's move forward. The Bible finally has this awesome reality and reliability in human psychology. And human psychology is interesting because science is constantly diving in and examining things that honestly are, are, are amazing to us. For example, you've all heard from the Bible that you should forgive, Right? Science has dove in several times now in the last decade, and they're starting to discover the science of forgiveness is huge. Many scientists are beginning to write the, about the benefits of forgiveness and tell everybody, hey, you need to forgive people. It's better for your blood pressure. Your immune system is better. You live longer. There's, your stress is lower just from forgiving. They're writing books on how to forgive and all this stuff that's out there, and scientists are all amazed about forgiveness. Um, yeah, I think we covered that a long time ago. We could add on the fact that in psychology, man, we understand children better than most people do, to be quite honest. You know, most people bank their psychology on a guy named Rousseau. Rousseau is this French existentialist, he's kind of this weird dude who literally made this opinion that human beings are born good, naturally good. Society is what messes them up. So get them away from society and you and correct society and you will have good people. The problem is the society. Well, here's the funny thing about Rousseau. Rousseau had one problem in his life when he said this about children. He never raised one of his children. He gave them all away. I think if had he raised one of his children, he would have said, this is a dumb idea, and thrown it out. Because you know, you don't have to train your children to lie, do you? You have to train your children to want to steal. You don't have to train your children to do evil. They come by it totally on their own. I did. You did. And what's interesting is this, the Bible says humanity is this beautiful good mixed with this horrible mess. And that best explains how you can have moral progress at the same time as moral regress in a culture. How we can say, oh, that was a great time period, but there was all this other evil over there. And so there's never a utopia and there never will be because humanity is broken and we see it over and over and over again in the human psychology. And finally, what's interesting is just that this book has one last piece about it. And it was, found, it was kind of put in this way to my wife in her theology class. And it just amazed both of us as he said it because it, it rang so true. Her professor is standing there with the, with the Bible open and just reading it. And he just stops and he says, isn't it just crazy how this book knows you? Stop and think about that for a minute. When you examine this book, most of the time what happens is it examines you. I remember it was just an old dusty book I had read once from my parents had given me when I was young. And it didn't make much sense to me. And then one day I came to faith and I sat down and I opened up the book of James and I started reading through it. Oh my gosh, it was like fire. I learned more about myself than I did about the Bible in those readings. I found more about my problems and my faults and my issues. And it convicted me of a deeper problem than I could have ever imagined and then gave me hope to change. So something about this book that is illuminated comes to life and it challenges you and it shapes you. And when that comes to us, it's scary because you know what we want to do? We want to push it away. 
We want to say, no, 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 no. This can't be the word of God. I don't want to be changed. And yet I want to challenge you. How many of you have rejected the Bible? Not because of what you studied, not because of what you've looked at, looked at, but because, you know, to be honest, YouTube told you it wasn't worth reading. And how many of us have rejected out of ignorance rather than having read it to engage it? I don't want to challenge you. Maybe you're here today and you're checking out church and you're checking things out, but you've never really read the Bible. And maybe you have opinions about the Bible that you shouldn't even have because you haven't read the Bible. I want to encourage you to begin a journey in the Bible. And I would say start in the book of Luke and then read the book of Acts. As you walk through Luke and Acts, Dr. Luke and his historical documentation of this will walk you through all of the characters that you're going to meet in the New Testament. He'll introduce you to Old Testament characters and give you a couple synopsis of the Old Testament so that when you go back to it, it'll make a little bit more sense. But start with Luke and Acts, then roll through the New Testament and watch as you begin to engage and see and test it for what it says, not for what YouTube says it says. I guarantee you'll engage in in a completely different way with the Bible. And finally, maybe you're interested in learning a little bit more about kind of the defenses and the pieces that make the, uh, the Christianity something worth trusting and Jesus Christ's work on the cross worth trusting. We invite you to, to, to follow these instructions and text starting to, to that number and join in a starting point group where you can ask these questions and dive in looking at this information. It's a place to feel safe to explore even if you're not a Christian because we want you to ask your questions. We want you to pursue truth. Don't just assume because there are answers, and we want to engage you with those. In the meantime, can we just bow our heads and let's engage with our God one time as we just thank him for speaking to us. God, I don't know how many other ways you need to tell us that you've spoken. You've signed it. God, you, 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 sent, you came yourself as a human. You pointed at it. You said it was your word. God, over and over and over again, you've laid in prophecy and science and psychology. You're just all through it. I don't know what else we would need, Lord, but I don't know what else other people would need either. So I just ask that as they dive into the Bible, that you would reveal your presence there. God, as we prepare to get engaged for this season of spiritual growth, help us to walk and trust it even more knowing that you've given us something reliable, knowing that you've spoken to us and that we can trust you. We thank you for all that you've given to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.